Hi there, welcome to Explodive View. I'm Craig Makowitz. It is said that a company's brand exists in the minds of its customers. The company can only do its best to influence that image. I love this interpretation because it means brands can't just talk about what they believe is right, but they also have to live it through their actions, products, and services. Companies should make their products and actions speak for the brand as much as a tagline or advertisement. Authenticity is a buzzword, but I believe it's for good reason. But how do you create a brand from scratch that has meaning and hits the right chord with consumers, especially in today's crowded marketplace? So today on Explode View, we're going to be talking to my friend Larry Parker, design director at Rivian Automotive, and learn how he helped develop the Rivian brand from scratch. What steps are important to consider when developing the brand from the ground up? And how do those strategies get applied on everything from the product to imagery? I'm excited to learn more, so let's jump in. Larry Parker, it's great to have you on the show today. Welcome. Hi, Craig. How are you doing this morning? Doing well. Doing well. Excited to be chatting with you. Yeah, it's good to catch up. Yeah. So I'm curious a little bit about your background because I want to learn how you got into design first. Then we can kind of jump into developing the brand that is Rivian. But how'd you get into design? Well, I mean, my path to design was kind of long, I'd say. It didn't probably follow a traditional arc that that many designers uh, follow. I grew up in a, a pretty blue-collar community, the son of a Brazilian immigrant and a father who um, was a machinist. Um, so when I grew up, there there had always been a need and a, and a desire to kind of work with things in the mechanical sense. Um, Mm -hmm. since my father, again, was a machinist, it's always seemed like making things or creating things ourselves or fixing things ourselves was, was kind of core, um, to, to what we did. And from a very young age, my father worked out of town. Most of the time he was, he traveled in the automotive industry and he would, he would frequently ask me to fix things at a very young age around the house, you know, change light bulbs, um, you know, replace a socket. And probably one of the earlier memories I have of, of having to do something that was kind of probably out of, out of character for a lot of 12 year olds at the time was, I think our water heater went when I was about 12 and, um, and he called and, he, and my mom called him to tell him that like the water heater had, had broken. And he was like, get Larry on the phone. And I got on the phone and that's okay. Go to Sears with your mother and buy a new water heater, make sure it's the same size and put it in. I was like, okay. So I got, wow. I had to like <laughs> figure out how to turn the gas off and like, you know, and how to connect the thing. And for years, years, I mean, I'm going to say like 15 years after there was a, um, tin foil, extension I had to put on the exhaust. You know, the top of water heaters got like an exhaust tube that like vents out. Right. It was too short to connect to the new, like the old tube, this new one. And I had to create this tinfoil tube and it sat on there for like 20 years. <laughs> um, and, and then I recently, not recently, a couple of years ago, I was like, mom, we got to replace this because it was just failing. So my path to design started kind of in, in that world, um, in, 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 you know, the, the hands-on world. As I went through high school and graduated high school, um, again, I kind of came from a community where college was not everybody's direct path. There was kind of a more vocational path for many people. Mm. I ended up working in machining myself, you know, at a young age of like 18. I worked in a machine shop. I found myself at, you know, getting up at 4 a.m. to start at a five o'clock shift and, um, you know, running a mill. 
Uh, and I, I found really quickly that this was not the path I wanted to take. I ended up at a school here in, in Detroit called um, Wayne State University, uh, you know, studying some engineering classes because for me, engineering was the next step from that machining world. Like those were the people I interacted with, you know, day in and day out where like, right. engineers would come out and I was like, ah, I don't want to be out here. I want to be in there. Well, um, uh, that kind of evolved into working in the automotive industry. Um, and quickly from there, uh, I found an opportunity in the aerospace world and that aerospace world, you know, introduced me to CAD software and different tools. And, um, around the same time I met, I met my, um, now wife, Mandy, and, um, she's an interior designer and had graduated from Michigan State University in, in interior design. And kind of opened my eyes to some things that I, I wasn't really thinking about at the time. Like I'd always liked architecture. I'd, I'd always liked furniture. I'd always liked some of these other things that kind of came around, like I would say like domestic life or home life. And mm -hmm. she introduced me to the names of designers. She's like, oh, that's the Eames lounge chair. Oh, that's that. And that kind of was a bit of an awakening for me. And since I had been learning some of these, you know, CAD tools in, in the aerospace world. Um, I quickly found myself like trying to utilize those tools to explore these other areas that I now found a lot more interesting. And um, at some point I decided that engineering was not the path for me and uh, that if I found a way to, you know, take that engineering background, that mechanical design world and apply it to a world um, of products that I found interesting on a day-to-day -day level, you know, things that I react, you know, whether it was the mountain right. bikes I rode or, you know, snowboards, you know, and, and bindings and all these things that I found interesting. Um, if I found an opportunity to combine my world of hobby and interest with, with my work, I thought I'd be in a good position. So, um, in the kind of in the mid two thousands, I went back to school uh, at the college for creative studies, uh, to study industrial design. I couldn't sketch uh, a bit. And, uh, I was a number of years older than most of the students at the time and, uh, really had to work my butt off mm. to kind of learn the base skill level. And then right. ultimately to, um, to apply those and then, uh, go through that whole design process. And one of the unique things I'd say that I discovered along the way was that I had this very, um, right brain, left brain, you know, type of approach because of that engineering and engineering background. And, and I was working full time in the engineering world, you know, during the whole, during my whole time at CCS. And that really required me to turn that kind of thinking off when I'd go to school, um, because there was a certain type of, of, uh, kind of like what I would say would be linear thought that you needed to apply to some of the design problems you'd see in the engineering world where I'd arrive at school and, and now be tasked with thinking differently. And that was like a really important thing to kind of recognize, um, during that process. So I, I, I can rant, I can rant, I can go on. <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting that there's such a, but you, you hit all these points throughout your career and you don't realize how they all kind of build to where you're at today, but they all kind of inform that, that, that path. And then that place that you end up. And it's really interesting to hear how those kind of steps lead you to that path and, and where you're at today. Yeah. I think it, it has a lot to do with taking them um, and recognizing what they offer you and how to utilize them in the future, when to forget them. 
if they're not, you know, if they're not useful, um, right. You know, and, and identify what you need to learn or what you need to know as you move forward. And I think all too often we get really concerned with being specialized in a certain area, but there's, there's something to be said about having a broad depth of knowledge in a lot of different topics. Um, and that, that can be really valuable when you need to approach a problem that you've made, you may have never solved before. And, um, I, I think there's, there's value in that. So, right. Do you, do you think that there's certain brands that inspired you when, when you were younger, because we're, we're here today to talk about, you know, building the Rivian brand from scratch. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if there's brands that you've interacted with that, have inspired you. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, uh, growing up, I started skateboarding when I was seven years old and, um, I, and then I started snowboarding when I was eight, I think. So this is in the late eighties. I'm 40 now. So this was 87, 88. So this was kind of at the, um, uh, at, at a high point for skateboarding in the eighties. And then there was a low point that quickly followed, but, you know, since I always identified with, with the world of skate, it instantly kind of connected me to the, the counterculture and the brands that are associated with that. And if as a young skateboarder, I remember like you only bought your t-shirts at the skate shop because you wouldn't be caught wearing anything from the mall and you only bought, (laughs) you know, like this is just like how, like when you identify with a subculture, you identify the brands in those subcultures. So at the time, you know, those brands were Thrasher Magazine. Those brands were, were H Street and Vision Streetwear and, and all these things that, you know, kind of instantly connected you to uh, a community, so to speak. Like, you know, as a skateboarder, you know, especially in a time of no social media and a very different world, um, you know, you read the skate mags and, um, you, you know, you, you met the skaters at the skate shop. And these were like cool older kids that you could look up to and they were wearing the clothes. And so it was really easy to connect with a couple of these brands. But I think one of the most important things that I took away from that and I actually still carry with me today is that there's a tremendous amount of, of authenticity in, in those brands. And even mm. still today, it's hard to make fake skate brands. It's hard to make fake brands um, that don't truly connect or speak to, to those, those, those core communities and, and skateboarding especially has always had a, a knack of sniffing out a phony in that space, um, or quickly, Mm. (laughs) maybe in a fickle fashion, turn on brands that, that go too corporate or too big too quickly. So like there's a foundation of that, that, that always kind of stuck with me, um, and demanded a different level of realism from, from, from brands and companies. And I love what you're mentioning about authenticity, because I think that's so critical and a statement that I've heard about brands nowadays, you want to be authentic to who you are, but what does that truly mean? And how do you kind of capture that? And I'd love to kind of get into that too, because I think that's that statement alone is so critical for a brand to, to be authentic to itself and to the people who are uh, a part of that brand, you know, the consumers who who want to interact with it. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Absolutely. And, you know, it um, is worth mentioning that, you know, in joining Rivian, I joined to, sci- uh, to solve design problems, not to build the brand. 
And um, I think many of your, your your listeners and and all of us as designers have you know went through a design challenge uh, for a company, whether it's consulting or working in house or your own project. And you know, very naturally, out of that design process, all kinds of other other elements outside of the design itself start to come to life during during the design process, whether it's you know the customers of which you're designing for, your audience, whether it's how a brand could be positioned, um, what a company could look like, what messaging could be, like all these other ideas that are traditionally held in kind of other departments outside of the design organization uh, really become um, part of the, like a really holistic design process. So in joining Rivian, right. my main focus was on the product itself. And it wasn't until a couple years in that I started to recognize that the work I had done to drive the design could also kind of drive the brand. Hmm. That's really interesting. For those who are new to the Rivian brand or not necessarily familiar with the company, can you just do a quick introduction of who Rivian is and what, what you're creating? Yeah. So um, Rivian is a, a new car manufacturer uh, founded on the idea of bringing a new brand of, of electric vehicle to the market, um, mostly directed towards the outdoor the outdoor space. And what Rivian is today is uh, we're launching a, a, a two sets, uh, a set of vehicles, um, one called the R1T, one called the R1S. These are relatively high range, around 400 mile range uh, truck and SUV that are highly, <clears throat> highly capable vehicles designed uh, with a lot of features and functionality built around kind of an active lifestyle. So kind of relatively new into this market space and ultimately, you know, new into uh, the category as well. Like this is essentially a new category for the automotive world. Um, but uh, to, to, to say Rivian is an automotive company, I think is probably uh, limits the, the true focus of the organization um, and how we got started. But I'm, I'm sure we'll go into that a little bit more into here. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys haven't checked out uh, the Rivian product line, definitely worth uh, jumping online. We'll probably post some to our Instagram, but go to yeah, Rivian.com and check them out because there's some really amazing shots of these vehicles and they're absolutely beautiful. And there's so many really cool features and functions, which we'll probably chat about too. But I want to go back to the beginning of Rivian when it was first formed and then when you joined. So what was the status of the company when you when you joined? So uh, I... I had joined Rivian in kind of late 2014. Uh, I had been doing design consulting and uh, doing a lot of freelance projects uh, in the consumer, you know, consumer goods space, furniture, a number of, uh, of other places. And uh, when I when I was introduced to RJ, the the founder of of Rivian, there was about maybe. 10 or 12 people in the company, I think that, that I had interacted with, there maybe have been a couple more, maybe 14 or 15 total in the organization. Um, they had, uh, recently secured a round of funding to build a product. And, uh, that's when somebody who I had worked with back in the aerospace world had reached out to me. So I came in to meet to meet RJ, um, not really interested in working in the automotive space. I, sh I, I would say, you know, mm. like many industrial designers, you, you know, you choose a path in design school and whether you're a car designer, whether you're a product designer, whether you're going to focus on another territory uh, of the design world. And for me, automotive never seemed like a place I, I would be. However, 
uh, I got introduced to RJ and the vision RJ had about kind of like the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years of the automotive space was something that I hadn't thought about, but there was a vision there. So at the time, RJ was talking a lot about the world of vehicle ownership and the world of uh, vehicle usage, uh, you know, as a, as a, you know, somebody who owns a vehicle versus, you know, rents or uses a vehicle and how Mm -hmm. the automotive world today and for the last hundred years was, was kind of built on this, you know, the model that we still use today, which is essentially, you know, asset sale, like you buy a car um, and you drive off with a car and it sits in your driveway approximately 92% of the time. Um, Wow. So that's, that's pretty much almost all cars sit 92% of the, their lives um, with the exception of like fleet usage vehicles. Sure. And, uh, That's wild to think about. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Right? There's, there's, that number is so high. Yeah. There's a, tr- so there's a, there's a tremendous case for vehicle sharing, right? So since RJ graduated from MIT in the Sloan school of automotive technology, he had been living in this like automotive intellectual circle, thinking about the next world of cars, thinking the next world about vehicle ownership, thinking about new construction techniques uh, when it comes to vehicles. And so when I had joined the, the discussion was about what does the next hundred years of car ownership look like? And, uh, so it was really compelling to me because I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that before. And, you know, going to a school that had a, a pretty robust design program, uh, in the automotive space, it was clear that like, that wasn't the conversation. You know, you, you'd hear conversations about like new vehicles, but it was more about, you know, what the future of a, a vehicle could look like as opposed to you know what the business model might be uh in a right. new world of, of of vehicles so that's when i joined that was essentially the um the challenge you know what does the next hundred years of car ownership look like what is the next next generation of car company look like and how does service and the services you provide become a big part of of what a brand of the future could be and so when you when you started that conversation and, and started having those conversations internally with that small group of people, I mean, how, how did you kind of visualize that concept and turn that into a brand? I mean, just going back to the early steps of how you got to where Rivian is, because at that point, Rivian, did the name even exist at that point? I mean, yeah, the, the, the name did exist. Um, so Rivian prior to that. So Rivian started a couple years prior to that. Um, with the intentions on building a, um, a range extended hybrid. So if you go back to the origins of Rivian, RJ wanted to make the biggest impact possible in the automotive space. He saw all the challenges in the automotive industry, but he also saw the impact of climate change. And this is in, okay, the mid thousands. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, the guy, uh, he, he, uh, came out of school with the idea of building a pedal powered car company to eliminate car oh, wow. inner, inner city um, streets. So this was like his first idea. I'm, that's first- so fascinating to me that, that that's where, you know, it can start is that this pedal powered vehicle. <laughs> yeah. So it starts, it starts at a pedal powered vehicle. And then he quickly realized that that wasn't it. Um, and since, you know, he was a young car enthusiast, like, like many of us are, you know, getting out of school, he then decided that he was going to build a small sports car and introduce uh, hybrid or all electric technologies to uh, a then public who had very little experience with with EV via uh, uh, you know kind of a performance vehicle. Uh, then you know the economy crashed in two thousand eight, and you know almost every 
automotive manufacturer, you know, went out of business, you know, are the big three here in, in, uh, in, in Michigan needed, needed bailouts at, at any rate, uh, they had built a small car, um, shown it to a number of investors and, um, uh, ultimately um, garnered the interest of a, a number of them, but really realized that this was not the way forward, and that a small a small sports car was not was not a big enough step for for the like the world at large to hmm. look at ways to adopt EV technology. So from there, RJ went back to MIT and connected with with a number of individuals and and took the remaining funds he had and said, "I'm not going to pursue this this small car. I'm going to pursue." what the next big solution might be. And, uh, and then with that, try to find the right partners to help bring that to life. And that was probably around 2012, uh, 2013. And then uh, 2013 or so, a partner was found and gave us a specific task uh, of developing a, a small uh, vehicle. And we developed a small vehicle, uh, but it was in the truck world. That would um, be used for a very specific market, and the team did that. And that's actually this small, little, strange two-wheel drive mid-engine truck was on the top of a lift when I walked in the door at Rivian. And coming from the world of engineering and coming from the world of design, I I recognized, you know, like great craftsmanship. And when I saw, I recognized something that was interesting and unique, and it it kind of perked my interest. So. At the very beginning, it was, we're building this truck. We're going to, you know, kind of enter this market space, but we really didn't have any direction where the product was necessarily going to go or the brand was going to go. Right. So that was really when I walked in the door, it's like, we've got some funding, we have an idea, but we don't know where we're really going to go. Yeah. At that point, it seems like a, almost a blank canvas in a way, although the vehicle is there, but you know, trying to decide where you want to go. Uh, I'm very curious on what that process was like, but it's yeah. a, a thing that really informs the brand itself and where you're heading. So, so how did you come to the conclusion of where you're at today, starting from the beginning? So you have this vehicle up on a lift. Uh, there's this idea, there's some funding, but then what are the next steps to kind of developing out that brand and how'd you guys select this kind of outdoor market? So, it, I mean, it's um, like many things, it's a long progression of little steps, right? And it, it didn't start any different than any one of your listeners starts a project. And um, so we knew we wanted to create a product in this, in this specific space and um, the truck space. The outdoor, outdoor space or truck space? Just truck space, just truck space, really. Gotcha. And, um, and, and this was largely because we knew if we could convince kind of like the least likely market to convert, we could, we could, you know, sell this technology to a much broader audience. So if you start where it's difficult, it's very easy to get everybody else on board. Um, but right. I think if we, we had realized that if we created the Prius of trucks, that it would be hard to, to move in the other direction, R- regardless of that. The first thing we did was just like you do with any design exercise, like if you want to design something, you need to learn about who you're designing for. So in the very beginning, I focused a lot of my activities around learning about customers in the outdoor space. Naturally, I've kind of lived there my whole life, skating and snowboarding and mountain biking. And uh, so we quickly realized that we'd go out and we'd do some studies around that. 
We did a very guerrilla kind of ethnography, um, identifying key markets across the country and essentially adapting a uh, kind of short sprint model, um, week here, week there in these different locations to see how uh, seasonal impact, to see how weather and kind of location could impact how people might use a vehicle in the outdoor space. So we, we had a hunch in a, uh, that we'd kind of go, go in that direction. So I, I set out with a small kind of uh, teams, you know, a couple engineers, one or two designers, and, you know, maybe even a business strategist. And we'd, we'd go out and, and kind of just hit the ground, uh, connect with people we knew, do on the street interviews, capture, you know, lots of, you know, bootleg content um, and, <laughs> you know, meet people in parking lots. And as and I, I always say. I was uh, um, kind of like a nosy guy in a parking lot. Everybody used to, you know, um, a lot of our colleagues would they like they'd make fun of the fact that like we were we were on vacation the whole time. And I was like, you guys should go stand in a parking lot for eight hours and bug people about their cars. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, so we, we'd head out and we would do that. And um in the beginning, we were learning about the product. We weren't learning about the brand per se. We were learning about the product. What did it needed to do? How did people use it? Mm-hmm. Studied all kinds of extreme use case, people living out of their vans. And this is like early kind of pre-van life hashtag, you know, like probably 2015. Um, right. Learning how people were using their vehicles. Um, and then through that, we slowly started adapting some of those features and some of those insights that we found in field to the products we were working on. And slowly that, that built into, um, you know, what a product looked and felt like at the same time, we were still studying this world of mobility. We were still studying this world of, um, uh, shared vehicle usage and, um, and, and coming to many conclusions along the way. And then, uh, around 2016, maybe maybe early 2017, we had def, you know defined a product that we thought we were going to make. We had um, a whole a whole kind of like treasure trove of of research and copious decks, you know that that covered the people we'd met along the way and and learning some of the the things that they needed. And we started to do some brand exercises with a small small studio. And the work was really coming back, I thought, in a, I don't know, I'd say like a very um, kind of like Tesla 2.0 way. It felt, mm. it felt, um, it just felt off. It felt like, uh, you know, sci-fi or uh, CSI, you know what I mean? Like it was, yeah. it was like kind of smoke <laughs> and you know what I mean? It just, it just didn't feel right. And I had mm. said to RJ, like that the brand really needed to reflect our consumers' lives. And if the brand didn't reflect with our consumers' lives, like how is it going to resonate with them? And I went back to me being a kid and looking at those skate brands that I resonated with and those people that I saw in those mags and the people who I met at the skate shop, like those were the people I wanted to be. Um, and I yeah. can imagine how a brand could look different than the people you met in the field doing the things that you hope to see them doing. So I, um, I essentially approached it how, how any designer would, I I approached it visually, frankly. So I took all that research and I said, okay, how does it, how does it need to look? How does it need to feel? What's, what's the kind of uh, emotions that need to be, um, kind of taken away from, 
from how this brand can look and feel. And uh, I had been watching tremendous amounts of like branded content um, just because I always do. I always like kept this running Vimeo list of like things that I enjoyed and, you know, like little surf pieces and skate pieces and things that just interested me. And I wasn't watching them for work. I was watching them for entertainment. And, uh, so I went out and I started doing some spec shoots and, and I've always been like an amateur photographer. So I started like going back country skiing with my friends and shooting that and showcasing what it could look and feel like. And I started, um, you know, you know, picking up more shots during travel and kind of went back and, and built, um, a bit of a style guide based on what things could look like. And that was kind of like the start of, saying like, okay, this is probably where this brand can go. And we met all these people and we learned all this insight about them. How do we transition what we've learned um, during that research process into a brand platform? And that was really the start. That idea too of the authenticity you talked about with your experience in the skateboarding world, I think it's really interesting when you look at your time spent in the parking lot is you're learning how to be authentic to the consumer in that moment and, and really spending the time and energy to make sure that that happens. And you have the authenticity built into the storyline of the, the, the brand itself is, is really important. I think is a good thing to remind ourselves as we're developing products for a brand is to really get at that authenticity. What's the end consumer interested in? What is, what are the things that they're passionate about and what do they love? How do they use their products? Going back to that, making sure that we're always, injecting that authenticity into the brand and always be almost policing it to a certain degree and making sure that it's a part of it consistently and constantly, I think is really important and and a good point that you make. Yeah. I mean, and again, it's like something that you don't necessarily realize um, when you're doing it, but, you know, being a good, you know, interviewer is, is really important. Um, We, uh, I frequently like to go out without too many questions, you know, like when when we would do kind of infield work, I like a lot of serendipity to happen. I like to just meet people randomly on the road uh, and and pick up what you see. There's many different brands of this and many different, you know, types of of research activities uh, that one can do. But for me, it was always one of, of, of looking and learning first. And I don't know, Mm -hmm. um, I think IDO put out a small little book um, a number of years ago called Thoughtless Acts. And it's like kind of on all these unarticulated details. And it's just a photo book. You know, it's just a photo book of random things. It also happens to be like the kind of stuff I like to photograph, you know, like a bag hanging on a chair or um, somebody using, um, you know, something um, like leaning up against a wall or, or, you know, sitting on, um, uh, sitting on a railing, you know, like all these like little random things that you do that, that, you're, you're essentially kind of like hacking the system and you find that mm-hmm. all over kind of the outdoor world and many of the worlds when you're trying to design to solve a design problem where you see people making decisions um, and they're and they're doing them kind of almost unconsciously. And that's what I would go out and look for. So, you know, seeing five surfboards stacked on the roof of a car with pieces of foam in between each one or. Um, somebody putting a toe strap or a, a ratchet strap in a, in a place of a car that doesn't, that's not supposed to have one, like the wheel well. And all hmm. kind of like little unarticulated details is what I kind of kept my eye open for. And through that, you could, you could realize and you could talk to people then about why'd you make that decision? You know, and 
they, you know, people could look at it and say, well, I don't know why. Well, I need to hold it down or I'm concerned about it blowing off or this or that. And through those things, you could extrapolate needs that they have and ultimately create design for them to help solve those problems. But at the same time, you can realize that, oh, security is an important part of, of what they care about. I can make security part of our brand, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the, right. the same way you solve a design problem can be applied to something differently. It's just the medium of the design is different. It's a photograph. It's a word. You know what I mean? It's a video. Um, so for me, I, I seem to adopt kind of like, I'd say like more of a European approach of design where design is kind of everything. You know, and I think here in the States, we, we get more, more, more discipline driven, like, oh, I'm a UX designer. I'm a product designer. I'm a car designer. But in the reality of an ad- adopting a life of design, like you start to think about everything you do, whether it's how you plate your food, uh, you know, the kind of music that you might, you might be interested in, um, you know, a, a choice around where you live, like all these things start to play a role in kind of like a life of design. And, and, and I think brand can be just as, just as applicable here. So it sounds like after those experiences, you and the small team that you went out with on these uh, trips, you figured out the direction that you felt like the brand should should go through these image boards you put together and all the content you created and the decks that were created. How did how did you communicate that to a broader audience? So the leadership like RJ and the, the rest of the team because you are going out with a smaller group, how do you sell and communicate that passion so that you can go down that path and make sure that that direction is kind of integral to the brand that is created? I would say that that wasn't easy. Um, And that was a a constant kind of journey of learning and kind of exploring and experimenting. So, you know, one of the real benefits that I think I had in doing this was a natural eye for photography. So I would capture I guess what I would believe would be compelling imagery of this work. And I always focused on building new decks. Every time I'd present an idea or a trip report, it was always in a new deck, in a new format. So I wouldn't follow something. And in doing so, that captured people's attention every time. Like when you look at a PowerPoint deck every week, it becomes the same thing, right? And somehow devalues the content. So I would make a new layout every single time. So somebody would be like, ooh, what's this? This is new. What'd you do? Oh, where'd Larry go this week? And so I'd always get those kind of questions. So (laughs) through that, we'd show the trip reports. We'd work We'd work as a team with engineering and, and, and some of our other team members and colleagues to show, okay, here's a couple key insights. And we'd present that live to our board um, and, and, and to the, the leaders in the organization. It was not always easy. There were many times where the market is a bit of a white space market. You know, there's not a mission-driven, outdoor-minded electric car company out there. And sure. um, so one might look at the data and say like, oh, there's there's not a market here for this. People don't care about the outdoors. People don't care about the environment, et cetera, et cetera, especially in the world of trucks, you know? So there was a lot of challenge in getting to that. Um, so, so you're creating very compelling you know, content internally to sell the idea that was coupled to real world insight is really what made it very important. Um, and there was really a tipping point, I'd say, that that really kind of helped get this sold internally as well as uh, I'd say externally. And that that tipping point came, I'd say, sometime in 2016, um, maybe early 2017, when I had to take a delegation of like 10, 10 potential investors 
on a journey in and around San Francisco. And hmm. it, this happened really quickly. It was very interesting. I don't live in San Francisco. I, you know, I've spent a little bit of time there. We've done a number of research projects there, especially studying um, shared mobility models and and some of like um, gig work apps and things like that. As we were studying a broad a broad set of um, uh, topics, um, especially as they were related to the world of mobility. And uh, I got asked to really quickly, hey Larry, you need to go and show this team what the brand could mean or could feel like. And it was really about one kind of core theme that we had identified. How could something be premium, but usable? And that was kind of like a a challenging question to people. Like how could something be thoughtful uh, at, at a slightly higher price point, but still be designed to be used and not like, like a luxury item, right? Mm. A big distinction. How do you create something that's refined, thoughtfully built, and high quality, but designed to be used? You say, hmm, okay, how could we do that? How do we communicate that idea? So I, I ended up taking this, 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 you know, this delegation of these ten potential investors on this trip across San Francisco to introduce this idea of being premium, not pretentious, and. Th- that culminated in a whole host of activities, you know, mm. starting, and again, this is a couple of years ago, starting in the morning and keep in mind, many of these investors were from all over the world, uh, started with like a $17 piece of toast and like, a, you know, a humble, humble, <laughs> this is kind of before the toast crate, wow. <laughs> you know, but it was like, it was like, they were like, you know, I, like I just fed you a $17 piece of toast in this like little place for a very specific reason. And it kind of started the day with that and then visiting other brands and, and then um, going for a, you know, going for a hike in Muir Woods and, and, and bringing food out to them. And then me presenting all of that, that research work that we had done and all the people we'd met along the way uh, over beers. And I turned the chairs around from the, the screen and I projected on the wall and had everybody stand up and we did a very different style of presentation. And that was like a real tipping point where like, I think people started to recognize that the work that we had done could shape the business and the brand in a way that we had never thought about before. And that Hmm. was kind of how it really started to move forward. And then ultimately culminating with, you know, revealing the products at um, the LA Auto Show at the end of 2018. And, and as you're developing out the product, I mean, you're also thinking about the, the overall brand, all the imagery that's, uh, you know, that's associated with it, all the visuals that are created, the, the videos. How do you make sure that the brand that you've defined and, and what you're creating really threads through each of those items into the collateral and all the content that's created and make sure that authenticity is really there? I mean, it's, um, it's a complex and I'd say nuanced the development process, um, you know, there was no rigid photo guideline or something that we developed, but we identified kind of core areas at how you might create imagery that resonates with this audience that you met along the way. And again, looking mm-hmm. at their lives, looking at the types of things that they resonate with and the types of things that I personally resonate with and, and, and going back to, again, going back to that, that kind of skate you know, snowboard foundation, you know, so much was, was not gratuitous product photography. It was about the life. Um, so it really became an exercise in how you could incorporate the, you know, you know, the consumer's lives and the products into, into the conversation. And as I had mentioned before, since there was 
kind of a white space here and nobody had really de- developed a, a product or a car like this. Right. It, it desired and, and required a different way of kind of presenting what it was. And then you, you kind of, you kind of build on that. So we essentially established a foundation of like finding the types of imagery that essentially create curiosity and the desire to get into the outside world. And, and what could that look and feel like? And then how do you incorporate the product into that? So, you know, the traditional path might be to take, you know, to think about the product first and be like, okay, the product's got to be perfect. You know, we're going to shoot the product. I really flipped it on its head and said, like, how do I incorporate the product into whatever we're doing else? Um, and starting from that position helped to really frame kind of a different approach and how you might do it. And granted, we, we show lots of product photography right now. Um, but I think, you, you know, people will resonate with the fact that there is something different about it. And there's only more, more and more potential in the future to, to get even more different. But I think something that's really key is that it's never been static. It's always been dynamic. And it's a very fine line between doing something that's new or going off path. And, you know, we, we've been very adamant about, about staying open and staying flexible as we kind of try to define what, what this could be. Yeah, I think it's interesting that one of the conversations we had in the past is that you, you said that the types of photographers, for instance, you hire is different than the expectation that would be in the automotive world. So could you talk about that a bit too? Yeah. I yeah. think that to authenticity. So um, before we launched, before before we revealed the products in, in late 2018, I had wanted to create essentially like something that felt like a concert or a band tour documentary, you know, like you always see like these tour videos from, from bands, or at least I remember seeing them in like the eighties and nineties where a band's on the road and it's like all the stops. Right. And you see all this kind of like very in the moment content that gets developed from something like that. Um, prior to launching that I wanted to create a piece of film content that felt like that, but did it around the Mm. product we were making. Ultimately, I was not able to, to sell that in and, and make that at the time prior to, prior to launch. Um, Uh but it was something that I definitely wanted to do, but that same thought required me to think differently about how you would capture things around the vehicle. So when we laid out what the, the company could look and feel like, we also identified what it wouldn't look and feel like. And there is a lot of great, great, you know, automotive photographers out there. Um, and, uh, but, but I wanted to take a slightly different approach. And, uh, so how do I look about, how do I look for the photographers that, that showcase, uh, an environment or a scene or a person, uh, more than a product. So that really required me to, to start looking at, at people from the outdoor world. And at the time, there was a gentleman who I had, un- unknown to me, I had, you know, like most of us do, you know, pulling a mood board together from things you find on the internet and elsewhere. I had uh, inadvertently pulled a number of images from the same photographer, and I didn't realize it, but it was only a couple of them. And there was one image, and it was from a guy named Ben Moon, who is an Oregon-based um, photographer who actually grew up. Um, in in West Michigan. I didn't know that at the time. And uh, he had one or two photos that I had found that were apparently from a trip that he had taken with some friends uh, in Norway, I believe. And they they like drove around Norway or, you know, you know, the Scandinavian regions for a few weeks with some friends. And I saw a couple photos that just felt very lived in, 
like the only kind of photos you can take when you spend time together for a couple of days. Like they don't happen on commercial shoots. They happen on, you know, they happen when it, with it, it's you with your friends. And right. I reached out to Ben via Instagram and couldn't tell him anything about the company and just said, Hey, um, I can't tell you anything about what I'm doing, but I work for this crazy car startup <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, I'd love to work together someday. Oh, by the way, you know, I, and Ben did a lot of surf photography and, and since I'm, uh, like a Midwest surfer, I surf in the great lakes. Um, I had like a connection and I dropped the Midwest surfing thing. And he said like, that's what caught his attention. Cause he grew up in West Michigan and he's surfed the great lakes before, which is kind of a, a strange things in, in, in the surf world. And, um, so we connected and then, uh, from there I kind of established this, this notion of working with people in that, in that space. And, um, that's how we started to create something that, that looked and felt different. Yeah. Because the, the product imagery is, is really uh, incredible. And, and I think that also goes throughout the entire brand and, and who you choose to partner with too, because we're currently watching a uh, long way up to documentary almost on, on, uh, Apple uh, TV plus, And it's about you McGregor making his way up from Argentina to LA and the revenue vehicles are a part of that. And it just seems like you guys always are a part of or interacting with events and things that are happening that kind of help to reflect and reinforce that authenticity and that, that brand you're trying to, trying to create. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, interestingly enough, so the long way up is the third installment of the long way series. The first one, which was called the long way round. The second, which was called the long way down. I believe the first one was filmed in 2003 and aired in, in probably 2004. I caught it around that time. And in the world of 2004, it was a pretty new format, like this long, long format travel log documented by the riders themselves. In this case, um, Charlie Bowman and, and, and Ewan were uh, on motorcycles and they drove in the first installment, they drove from the UK to New York. Um, via motorcycle through uh, through Mongolia and Russia, and then ultimately taking a boat over into to the United States and then and then across the country. That was very uh, impactful to me. The style and the feel of something that's real. And again, going back to that authenticity thing, like it it's real. It's not you know it's not yeah you know, it's not a, a scripted <laughs> show. It's it's a piece of real content. Right. It's very early in in the time of you know. Um, reality television or, you know, uh, user-generated content like that kind of world. So uh, randomly, we did a short kind of uh, photo shoot, film shoot in Colorado. And we decided that we were going to take the vehicles while we were in Colorado and see if we could do a little bit of a guerrilla kind of activation and get the vehicle in front of some people since we were in Colorado. So we ended up taking the the truck to the R1T to Aspen because we were going to be filming in, in the area because the X mm -hmm. were going on. So we're like, oh, there'll be a lot of people in town. Maybe we'll find out if we can just like put this car somewhere and get some attention. Yeah. And we ended up doing that um, yeah, right downtown in Gondola Plaza, which is like in downtown Aspen. And, uh, the CMO of Harley Davidson happened to walk by the truck and was like, what's this thing? They're like, oh, it's a, an EV truck. And they're like, what? And, you know, so they were really interested. Unknown to us, Harley had already started conversations with the producers of the Longway series as they were looking to make a third installment. And they're like, oh man, this, this is the perfect 
perfect opportunity. We need to find a way to work together. So that's how we got introduced mm. to that, that series. And for Rivian, it was a huge undertaking because we had to pull some stampings and a lot of production, maybe six, eight months ahead of schedule. And in doing that, essentially created VIN number one and two. So the first two VIN numbers ever produced by the company <laughs> wow. went to Argentina, uh, Argentina and drove um, 111 days back to, to LA as part of that series. That's so pretty was, serious testing. <laughs> it's huge, yeah, huge risk, almost reckless. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a lot of companies wouldn't do something like that, but the desire to do something that's real um, has been a really important part of the company. Like, you know, we've, we've not been a boisterous company by any, any means, especially in this like kind of like noisy space, like the noisy auto mm-hmm. startup space. Uh, and, and we just wanted to focus on uh, a really a show, not tell model. So let's, let's show you what we're doing and let that, and let that speak to the products and, and what we stand for. Wow. That's incredible. And it's interesting because I think back to also, the, the conversation we had earlier about the, the skateboarding companies and how important they were. And I, I almost picture you asking that question in your head, you know, would the skateboarding companies do something like this? And the answer is probably yes, you know, yeah. and <laughs> you guys make those decisions in a similar manner. It's like, we got to do it. We yeah. have to. Yeah, sure. Take the vehicle from Argentina to L.A. <laughs> there, there's there's something to be said about about not following like a rigid plan and and being open to make decisions on what feels right. And sometimes mm-hmm. as designers or as as a you know somebody who owns a business all too often you're looking for this really rigid plan to tell you exactly where to go. But when nobody's been there before, you have to make those decisions on a fly. You know, and it, you know that that is what adventure is all about is making a decision in any given moment to help kind of guide your next next move and whether that's you know some outdoor activity like climbing or hiking or you know across the country bicycle ride or whatever that is you have to make a decision at some point and and if you if you approach building this brand in the same way really great things can happen in doing so so that's that's something that like mm. we've always took into consideration and um had the I'm not going to say had the luxury, but we we certainly had the opportunity to make some of those kind of challenging decisions or one that might seem non-traditional for some. So for anybody who's part of the development of a brand and they're starting from scratch, what do you, what do you think are the most important things to get right? And, and uh, where, where should they spend their attention and time and energy? Finding out who you are, I think is really, really important. And, you know, we talk about authenticity and we've said it a ton today and actually it's kind of a buzzword in industry, right? But finding out who you are can really help at what you make and who you become uh, and who you design for. Because as you have a good understanding of, well, you know what, this is what I stand for. And if I stand for innovation or if I stand for um, exploration or whatever that may be, those those foundational elements uh, provide like a really, really sound building block that you can kind of move on from and and build whatever you want. And I think when you don't know who you are or what you stand for or why you deserve to exist, that that creates a, a slightly more challenging situation to build from. So understanding from there is super important. And then really closely um, connected to that is understanding who you're designing for. And if you don't know the customer, and you don't know what their needs are, their lifestyles are, how are you going to make something for them? Whether it's right. that they currently have or something that they don't know that they need, 
you really need to know those. So building on that, I think is a really, really core element as you think about going into the future. And all too often, you know, you know, us designers are looking for how we could start something, whether it's a Kickstarter campaign or a, a this or a that, or an idea that you have, Hey, I want to make this little thing. And sometimes a little thing can turn into a big idea and create a brand of its own. But all too often, if you start with being authentic to who you are and to who your customers are, I think you can build something that, that is more deeply ingrained in what, in what people can connect with. That's really good advice. And I think, uh, super inspiring. And, and for some of us, it's a, it's a good reminder to really think about the consumer and who you're building for it and, uh, make sure you pay attention to what are the things that they love? What are they passionate about? What are the things that are interesting to them and make sure that you're always looking back at that data and making sure it's reflected in whatever you're creating. And I think that's really good advice and something that is a good reminder um, to many to, to make sure that that happens in your day to day. Yeah. All, all too often, um, you know, we've, we've created these student personas, right. When we were in school, um, all, you know, which frequently re- like look resemble, uh, you personally, you know, you know <laughs> right. Yeah. You're like, uh, they're 23 and they live in a loft and, you know, like, you know, your idealized life, it seems all too often that these personas and I, that's actually, I stayed away from that, you know, uh, pretty specifically, uh, as I went forward. Um, but as you get to know people who aren't like you, or you get to know people who think differently than you or don't live the lifestyle that you might want to live, there's something to be learned from everybody. And, um, you know, how you think, how you solve those, those challenges and how you ask those questions, um, need to evolve significantly, um, from kind of our, our student approaches of, of just looking on Google and picking up a fictitious character character and a, and a bad, <laughs> uh, and, and using a celebrity's picture with somebody else's name on it, which also seems quite, quite common. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> we've all seen that before and we've all probably done that before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then I, I'm just curious what, what do you think is critical for brands to communicate nowadays? What do you think is really important to consumers that maybe many brands are missing? It goes back to that foundation, Craig. It's what you stand for. You know, um, all too many, like all too often there are brands that people have no idea why they exist or what, why they're built. You know, they think of them as their products, but you know, the, the great brands of the world and the brands that we resonate most hold more value and more meaning to us. So today you could mm-hmm. ask a host of individuals of, of what specific brands stand for, whether it's at Nike or Apple or, or any of these big brands that we know. And in many of the cases, people could say, could give you a couple words about what they might stand for or what they might mean. And that could be different than their, than their generic counterparts. So for instance, you might say like Dyson, what does Dyson stand for? And a lot of people, especially if you've bought their products or whatever, you might say blow molded plastic or goofy colors or, or whatever, but you might also say like, I don't know, innovation or technology, you know, what do they stand for to you? Mm -hmm. And if you ask like, what's Hoover stand for, you know, you might get like, most people probably won't say value, but they won't understand like a broader purpose. And that, that can be said around a lot of brands we interact with day in and day out. So having a purpose and having, you know, the ability to be grounded in, in, in what you truly stand for is really, really important, I think, to, to uh, a company, but also to a consumer. Because I think today, now more than ever, 
people don't want to be sold stuff. I mean, you know, looking at the kind of platforms we interact with today, Instagram and and other social media platforms, which have now just become new kind of marketing engines for people to shove ads down our throats. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we don't we don't want that. And uh, you want something that's real and you want a story and you want something that you can connect with at an emotional level. And that's why having a story um, and being true to that is, is I think, of the utmost importance right now. It, that's really interesting. And, and, and you kind of segue into my last question, which I always ask about the future of whatever topic we're, we're talking about. And I'm curious, what do you think is really critical for brands to get right moving forward and, and in the future? And maybe that plays a role in the, the types of content you're creating and the products you're creating. But I'm curious, what, what do you think is important for brands to get right in the future? Um, I mean, it's all kind of tie again, ties back to that same point, having, having something to stand for. And if you don't have something to stand for in the future, you need to find something to stand for and you need to be true and honest to what, to what that is. Um, and I also think it's important that, that we as brands need to evolve constantly and we need to make sure that we're, we're using our platforms for, for, for good. And I think that's one of the things that we're recognizing today as a company that, I never imagined I was going to build a company that, you know, had a, what you might describe as a platform, um, you know, to communicate for people to listen. I never thought for a second, like I, I never went into it thinking about that, but I think right. brands need to recognize that, that they have an ability to, to, to affect positive change, um, in a whole host of areas. And I think brands of the future need to be thinking about what they are more than the bottom line, more than just what they're selling and more than their products but what they can stand for represent and how they can, how they can change, change the world around them. And I think um, we have an obligation to do that. I love that. That's great. Thank you so much, Larry. I really appreciate you going through this and telling us the story of how Rivian got started and, and how you built the brand from scratch. It's a, it's a really fascinating story and there's so many great insights there that I think we can all take away um, in the work that we do on the day to day. So thank you so much, Larry. That's it's been great. Yeah, it's great training, Craig. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Nowadays, people can really sniff out brands' intentions. So it's ever more important to build a brand that's meaningful, regardless of whether it's new or 100 years old. Spend time with the consumer and you'll be handsomely rewarded with insights a Google search just can't provide. If you like this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram for more helpful insights and info on new episode launches. Catch you next time on Explodive View.